guys can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Emily Schultz. I'm one of the pastors here in New Denver, and I hope you're all having a great Valentine's Day weekend so far. Let's give credit where credit is due to the most adorable holiday of the year. However you're celebrating with friends or a spouse or your parents or your kids, I just hope that you feel extra loved this week. And if you don't, come and talk to me. I will buy you some chocolate. Seriously, everybody needs to feel loved. Last week, we started a three-week sermon series on the book of Numbers, and if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message online on our website or wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're reading through the Bible in a year with us, because this series is meant to help guide us as we read through the book of Numbers together. And I hope you guys are having some fun with this. One of you texted me this week and told me that you were reading Numbers chapter 7 to the tune of the 12 days of Christmas. And now I can't unsee that. On the 12th day, I hear a brought his offering, one gold dish, one young bull, and five lambs as a fellowship offering, something like that. Yeah, that's going to stick with me for a while. So thank you. You know who you are. Numbers is all about the time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness of Sinai between God rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt and them getting to enter the land that he promised them. We said last week that there are three big themes to watch for as we read through the book of Numbers. The people of Israel fail and there are consequences. God is present with his people in the wilderness and God desires to bless his people in the wilderness. Today, I want us to look at one story from the book of Numbers so that when you read it in the reading plan tomorrow, you'll have a better idea of what to do with it. But before we do that, we need to back up a little bit to a scene from Exodus, and we need to read a passage that's really important for us to keep in mind, not just as we read through Numbers, but really as we read all of the Bible. In Exodus, God uses Moses to be the leader of the people of Israel. God rescues the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and then Moses goes and spends some time up on Mount Sinai with God, hanging out with him. And God gives him ten commandments written on stone tablets that he is to bring down the mountain and share with the people. But when Moses comes down from the mountain, he finds that the people are rebelling. And they're disobeying God already after he literally just saved them. So Moses gets mad, and he smashes the tablets, goes up back on the mountain to be with God again. And then God comes and reveals himself to Moses, and God gives Moses a self-description to bring back down to the Israelites to better explain to the people who this God is, who they're supposed to be following. So if you're here today and you want to know what God is like, pay attention to this, because this is how God describes himself. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we read, And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate And gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And if we're reading carefully, when we get to that last part, it should call to our mind something we've already seen about God in the Ten Commandments, because it's similar. In the second commandment, He says, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is how God describes himself. Here's a summary of it altogether. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation, which is about how many generations would be living all together at one time. So that's the youngest person who would feel the direct effects of their oldest family member's sins. And then look at this contrast. But he shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. This becomes a really important description for the people of Israel to know who God is. And we read echoes and reverberations of this description throughout the rest of the Old Testament. This is who God is. He's compassionate and gracious, and he is just. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and he's serious about sin, about obedience and disobedience. This description of who God is should be running in the back of our mind as we read every story in the Bible. We read with this lens of, what's this story showing me about who God is? Is it showing me his love, his compassion, his forgiveness, his patience, his faithfulness, his justice? With that in mind, let's take a look at our passage for today. We're going to read from Numbers chapter 20. This is after the people have been wandering in the wilderness for a long time. They're almost to the end of their 40-year sentence. Numbers 20, starting in verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Poor Moses. He's been dealing with this for 40 years. Can you even imagine? He's been listening to these people grumbling and complaining. They're still claiming that slavery is better than their freedom, and they're griping about not having grapes and pomegranates and figs when those are the exact things the spies brought from exploring Canaan. They could have had those things if they had trusted God and obeyed him and entered the promised land, but they had refused. This is so frustrating for Moses. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. This is going to be a miracle, by the way. They're in the desert, and there's not a good water source around. And Moses is supposed to just go look at a big rock face and tell it to give them water. Imagine, what would your response be? Imagine you're, you're out camping in the mountains, and there's no water around, and God tells you to do this. Are you like, sure, God, I'll just go talk to that rock over here? But Moses had followed Yahweh long enough at this point and seen him do so many amazing and miraculous things that, yeah, his response should be to trust God and obey. But he doesn't get it quite right. Let's keep reading. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. So far, so good. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And then here's where Moses messes up. Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? This is not going well. Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Close, but not quite. First of all, Moses' attitude is pretty bad. Listen, you rebels. It's understandable in light of all the whining, but he's the leader, and he's not supposed to be acting this way. And then more importantly, he doesn't actually obey what God told him to do. 
God said, speak to the rock. But what does Moses do? He strikes the rock twice. He bangs his staff on it. Bang, bang, and the water pours out. It still works. God is so gracious. He still does the miracle and provides for his people. But he isn't too happy with Moses. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. I think some of us struggle with this story because Moses' response just doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. So he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. Who cares? Maybe you found yourself thinking that. But God sees Moses' heart and God knows what the real issue is going on here. He says Moses didn't trust in him enough to honor him as holy. This becomes a classic story of failure and consequence that's referenced over and over throughout the rest of Scripture. This is Moses' greatest public leadership failure. There were two major problems with what Moses did. A lack of trust was the first. And this actually makes sense because if you've been reading carefully, when you get to Numbers 20, it should feel like deja vu. We saw a very similar episode back in Exodus 17. Right after God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt and they begin their time in the wilderness, they get hungry and start complaining and God provides food for them, manna and quail. And then they get thirsty and God tells Moses to strike a rock so the water will come out. This is 38 years later and so these two events are like bookends of the people's rebellion and grumbling. So when God tells Moses this time to speak to the rock, but instead Moses strikes the rock, He's not really trusting in God to do a miracle and provide. He's relying on past experience. He's saying, yeah, yeah, God, okay, I remember this one. I'll take it from here. Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? He doesn't even give God the credit. According to Moses, it's his brother Aaron and him who are giving the people water from the rock. He's super frustrated with the people and is acting out of his anger. Moses' failure to trust and obey Yahweh here is equated with the people's failure to trust and obey Yahweh earlier when the spies brought back a report of Canaan. And so Moses' consequence is the same as theirs. He doesn't get to enter the promised land either. God takes obedience and disobedience really seriously. But there was a second problem with Moses' response. God's interpretation of Moses' action in striking the rock has another layer to it. Because it's not like God is saying, I gave you these instructions and you disobeyed because you got this one little part wrong, so you're out of the promised land. See ya. Too bad. So sad. God isn't petty. Here's what God actually says to Moses. He says, you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. We've seen in Exodus and Leviticus that God cares a lot about his holiness. When Moses neglects to reverently follow God's instruction to speak to the rock, and in his frustration, he huffs and puffs and strikes the rock instead, it shows he's getting a little too casual, a little too comfortable with a powerful, holy God. Moses had many intimate moments with God. God talked to Moses face to face like a friend, so it makes sense that this was a hard tension for him to navigate. This is a hard tension for some of us to balance, too. God is close to us and he loves us, and he wants to be our best friend, and yet he's also the big and powerful creator and sustainer of the entire world and is worthy of all of our respect and obedience. 
This is a tragic story for Moses, and it's a reminder to us that we need to have a right view of who God is, a holistic picture of what he's like. Remember Exodus 34, compassionate and gracious doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. God is holy, separate, other, and yet he is near to us and cares. We see this interplay of God's transcendence and imminence throughout Scripture, and in the Pentateuch we see over and over this dance of God's holiness and his graciousness, his heart for justice and righteousness, and his compassion and love. If the story of Moses striking the rock is hard for you to swallow, it doesn't seem fair or the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime for you, I wonder if it might be that your view of God's character has gotten out of balance. Sometimes we tend to prioritize one aspect of God's character, one of his attributes over another. And we all do this. Whole streams of Christianity will prioritize one attribute over another. Maybe you were raised in a tradition where you were taught to view God as close and personal and active and present above all else. Or maybe you grew up in a church where your image of God was that he was holy and other and unapproachable in his perfection and power. Both of these images of who God is come from Scripture. But where we get into trouble is when we prioritize one image or one attribute over another. Some of us are all about God's love, 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 love. But what about his justice? His righteous anger and his hatred of evil. You know, we actually want a God who is just. A God who won't just wink at sin and say it's okay. We want a God who is going to come and save the day and kick the butt of sin and death and make everything right and whole again. We want a God who mourns over the injustices of this world and who is going to someday make the wicked pay. We just don't like God's justice when it gets turned onto us or to people that we love. When we mess up, when we stray from God, when we disobey, then we just want love, love, love. So I think some of us can't imagine God punishing Moses for what feels to us like a rather small infraction. But God punishes Moses because God is just. And apparently to God, this did not feel like a small infraction. Moses should have known better. As the leader of Israel, he did have such a close, special access to God. He was the one up on the mountain meeting with God face to face. God chose to reveal himself to Moses. And God gave Moses the law. All those instructions we read in Exodus and Leviticus and parts of Numbers about how to be the people of God and how to be in relationship with a holy God, God gave those instructions first to Moses. So Moses was more acquainted than anyone with how seriously God takes his holiness, his reputation. But then when it came to speaking to the rock, Moses got mad. He was tired of the people's grumblings. He was fed up with the Israelites, and he acted out of anger. But in doing so, he misrepresented who God is. God was being patient with his people. He wanted to lovingly provide for them water from the rock. It should have been a moment to celebrate God's miraculous provision for his people yet again. But instead, Moses ruined the moment. He made it all about him. He failed to express his trust in God through obedient actions. He failed to uphold God's holiness, and there was a consequence to his failure. For us, this story should serve as a word of caution that God desires obedience from his people. God wants his people to keep his commands, to listen to his voice, and to respond in obedience. 
I know we're supposed to be talking about numbers in this series, but context is so important. So we reached back and pulled from Exodus today, and now I want us to jump forward and get a sneak preview of Deuteronomy, which is the next book we're going to read. Deuteronomy is a retelling of Israel's history and of how to be the people of God for the younger generation who have now grown up and are ready to enter the promised land. Moses has been forbidden to go in and is about to die, so he wants to make sure they know all they need to know in order to succeed once he's gone. He's like a parent about to go on a trip, and he's giving all the instructions to the kids and to the babysitters that everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing once he's gone. Moses has clearly learned his lesson about obeying God because Deuteronomy, in a nutshell, is this. Here's how to flourish when you get into the promised land. Obey the Lord, obey the Lord, obey the Lord. Deuteronomy 5 says, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Deuteronomy 6, Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Deuteronomy 8 is all about obeying the Lord, and if you obey the Lord, things go well for you in the promised land, and if you forget the Lord and turn away from him and don't obey, then things won't go well for you. The chapter ends with this, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Now, this is not a call to obey God because he's a dictator and what he says goes. Obedience flows out of relationship. This is a call to remember all that Yahweh has done for them, all the ways he's rescued them and been present with them and provided for them and blessed them, and then to respond to Yahweh with wholehearted love and devotion. It's a call to keep cultivating the special relationship they have with Yahweh, which is why The opposite of obeying the Lord is forgetting him. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, it's the same thing. Obey the Lord, obey the Lord, obey the Lord. God desires obedience from his people. And there's another element we see here, and it's this. God's blessing is tied to obedience. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses outlines this idea that God's blessings for obedience and there's cursings for disobedience. He says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God. There are a bunch of chapters on how to obey the Lord. It's a summary or retelling of the law. Instructions for how to live as God's chosen people with special access to a holy God. And here we see again God's holiness and his heart for justice. And then chapter 26 picks up again with obey the Lord, obey the Lord, obey the Lord with all your heart. Listen to him. Because you are his people, his treasured possession, and he desires to bless you. The next couple chapters outline specific blessings for obedience and curses or consequences for disobedience. In chapter 29, the people renew their covenant with Yahweh. And then chapter 30 is really important. Listen to this. Moses says, Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today, again, 
in case you missed it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses says, I've set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life. Yahweh is life, and he wants to bless you. Obedience equals blessings and life. Disobedience leads to death. Then Moses transfers the leadership of Israel to Joshua in chapter 31. He climbs a mountain to at least get to see the promised land in chapter 32. He gives a final blessing to the people in chapter 33, and then he dies, and the book ends in chapter 34. The next book is about Joshua, and that picks up with Joshua being the new leader of Israel and finally getting to lead the people into the promised land. Sorry for the spoiler. Here's what's important for us today as we focus back on numbers and on blessing in the wilderness. Hear this again. God's blessing is tied to obedience. Now, this isn't necessarily a one-to-one correlation. Just because you're obedient doesn't mean that God will bless you in every single way that you hope to experience his blessing. And even when we're disobedient, oftentimes we still experience God's blessing in lots of ways because he's so gracious. But there's a wisdom principle here that we should take notice of. If we want to experience more of God's blessing in our lives in general, We should focus on obedience. We should submit ourselves to God's will as revealed in Scripture, trusting that he knows what's best for us and that his ways are what ultimately lead to human flourishing, or as Moses says, to life. When Moses strikes the rock, he disobeys and he suffers the consequence. But he learns his lesson, and for the rest of his life, he urges Israel over and over to obey the Lord, obey the Lord, obey the Lord. I guarantee he would say the same to us today. He'd say, God desires to bless you. Learn from my mistakes. Obeying Yahweh leads to life, to blessings. Trust him. Listen to him. Follow his ways. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. I want us to look at one more passage, Psalm 81. Psalm 81 is the reason I actually kind of love this tragic, bizarre, striking the rock story in Numbers, because this psalm helps us to better see the heart of God in it. Psalm 81, starting in verse 10, says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Did you catch that? Honey from the rock. The psalm is alluding back to God's miraculous provision of water from the rock, likely with both instances in mind, the time God provided in this way in Exodus 17 and then again in Numbers 20. He's saying, I'm the God who rescued you from slavery. Listen to me, obey me, and I'll make sure your enemies don't get the final say. 
I'll take care of you, I'll feed you with the finest of wheat, whole grain, organic, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. I love this psalm because of this imagery right here. This is God's heart. This was his heart for Israel, and this is his heart for you and me. God wants to satisfy us with good things. He wants us to experience blessing and a flourishing life. He knows what's best for us. And if we submit ourselves to him, trust him, and obey what he says, we'll see his blessings in our lives. Maybe not always exactly what we wanted or asked for or expected, but sometimes he'll surprise us with something even better. Water from the rock was amazing enough, but honey, that's upping the prize. The promised land was called over and over a land flowing with milk and honey, which meant it was going to be really, really good. Honey is used in the Bible as a prime example of something that's good and pure and sweet and satisfying. It's a special treat. Water keeps you alive, but honey? God doesn't want to give his people honey for its nutritional value. This is a pure expression of love. It's lavish. It's extra. God desires to bless his people above and beyond what they need. He wants to spoil them if they would let him. What they need is water, but he's like, sure, I'd give you water, but then let me do you one better. Watch this. Can you imagine seeing honey gushing forth out of a rock face like a mighty stream, bubbling up inside and bursting out, exploding from the rock? A river of sweet, gooey honey springing forth from a hard, dry rock. I'm getting kind of like Chocolate River and Willy Wonka vibes, except it's honey. The psalmist is making a point here. God desires to bless his people. Yahweh is for his people. He fights on behalf of his people. He longs to provide for his people and give them good things. If only they would trust him and obey. We'll stop there for today. I'd encourage you to keep on reading this week as we finish out the book of Numbers and then come back next week as we wrap up the series by exploring a story about a talking donkey. Let me pray for you. God, we praise you for who you are, for all that you are. You are holy, other, separate from us, wiser than us, stronger than us, and you're near to us. You're present with us. You love us. You desire to bless us. Help us to see you more clearly as we read your word this year. And as we learn who you are and what it means to be in relationship with you, help us to trust you more and more and give us the desire to obey you more and more. We love you, God. Amen.